Well, I just want to ask you a question. How many of you have, um, when you think about it, have, have ever had someone pay a price for you to put you in a better place? And I want you to think about this. Has someone else's pain meant your gain? And if that's, if, think about it real quick. Does someone come to mind and then raise your hand if you, you can think about that. If, just put it up high. Okay. I, I, I want to share with you, um, maybe I should ask this question. How many of you were born? You know, I mean, you had a mother who really loved you and for some almost nine months experienced a lot of discomfort. Some would say it comes with some pain. And then around childbirth, I'm getting myself in trouble. Some, I see some of the women's reactions. They're in extreme suffering and pain. And, and because of them, they've birthed you into a better place, right? They've, they've allowed for you to come and to be alive to this incredible creation of God, an expansive world that um, you get to enjoy because your presence everyone should have had your hand up your presence is the result of someone's pain someone invested in, be, in you before you even knew there was a you and the idea behind this whole series that we really um, I, I kind of in, introduced this series we were in a generosity one before that but back on Ash Wednesday we met on a Wednesday night and we started talking about as a church those who wanted to join in in this whole season of Lent one of the things we talked about is not so much uh, this time fasting because we did that earlier in the year but we wanted to talk about what does it mean for us to experience pain for someone else to re- basically to, to gain to maybe move forward to be in a better place Someone pays a price, someone suffers, someone invests, someone foots a bill, someone takes a hit because in doing so it puts you in a better place. And, and we've been talking in this series, is called crosswords because there are certain words like covenant that give that idea. George spoke about that last week. Someone keeps a promise even when it hurts. This week we're going to talk about redemptions, the, the fact that someone actually pays a price to set another free. In the following week, we're going to talk about rec- reconciliation. Someone forgives in order to restore a relationship. And I, I really encourage you to be at this uh, service next week because we're going to have an opportunity to hear a story and, and then we're going to have Mark Henderson's going to lead us into some time of prayer. I just think it'll be a, a great Palm Sunday, so I, I hope you can be a part of that. But what we're looking at and, and what I've just mentioned to you are just a few theological words that have some, what I call some very practical application in everyday life. And each implies the idea that someone endured pain for another's gain. So what I want us to do is stand, and we're going to read a verse of Scripture. It's, it's one that Jesus modeled. He modeled this kind of life. This is kingdom living, folks. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to live in the kingdom of God, is to, is to live with this sense that we're going to talk about in these words. Let's see this together. Keep your eyes on Jesus, our leader and instructor. He was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy he knew would be his afterwards. Let's pray. I just pray, Spirit of God, that you would speak. I pray that you would, in this room, create an atmosphere where there's an opportunity where there would be vulnerable and humble hearts so that you could speak to our specific situation through your word, this word, redemption. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, you may be seated. You know, one of the themes all throughout Scripture, if you go all the way throughout the Bible, is this theme of freedom. 
And this idea that people are trapped or imprisoned or in some way they are bound. And, you know, there's just some images that, you know, kind of help you kind of see that, obviously. All you kids remember the poo and all the rest. But anyway, from the Garden of Eden, where we find that we are trapped to our selfish, sinful desires... And then you follow Abraham, who God calls him out because he wants him to experience freedom from this evil, um, growing culture that he's a part of. He wants to set him free and apart. To when you come to Moses and this growing national family called Israel, who is in bondage to Egypt and are under the oppression of this ruler, Pharaoh. And you can go again and again throughout Scripture, and freedom is is something God deeply wants for you. And if you get to the New Testament, you find out that throughout the New Testament, this isn't just for a a person and for a few people. This is what God wants for his whole creation, all people. He says people who who are living in darkness or are somehow controlled by hate or or they find probably one of their closest friends is being fear. You ever had that word? Fear just is kind of with you, filled with anxiety. He says, I, I want to call you out of that and I want to move you into a place where you, you can live in the light and begin to be controlled by a love that's greater than you've ever experienced and that you can be anchored in peace and know that peace in your heart. A call to be free is found throughout the Bible and its fullest expression is you find in the words of Paul himself who writes in what I would call this Magna Carta uh, of liberty. It's, it's this kind of like constitution of this is what it means to be free as he's going through it and he talks about the grace of God and all the things around it he finally comes to verse 1 of chapter 5 and he makes this little statement that is kind of rings true it is for freedom that Christ has set us free which when you think about that you have to ask yourself this question exactly how does Jesus do that And the key is tied up in this word, this little crossword, which we use as a theological term called redemption. And and I imagine if I was to say to some of you in the high school age group and middle school age group, or I would talk to some of you and just say, what is redemption? It's not one of these words that we commonly necessarily find in our culture that we use quite often. In fact, it's, it's sadly, it's been removed in a sense from, from what the, the rich meaning of it is in the word of God. And it's become a religious word. And that wasn't the case for a lot of people living in the first century. When people um, were uh, reading these, these letters and were, were reading the Old Testament, this word had a very practical meaning to it. Redemption actually meant something. It wasn't just a religious term. It actually was a secular term. And it wasn't some general concept. It actually was a specific reality. It wasn't theory. It was highly practical. And so this morning, what I'd love to do is take a few moments to have you walk through with me. And the first thing I want to talk about is is what did this word mean? What was was its meaning back then? And and I'm going to encourage you to stay with me in that part, okay? You, You need to have a little bit of historical background. I know some of you want to yawn at that point, but I'll be watching. And then I want you to look at how Jesus uses it. In the context of his day, of what that word meant, how he uses it. And then finally, I just would like to have some practical application. What does it mean for us today? What does it mean for you when we talk about this word redemption? So what did the word mean? The the word redemption was a part of language for everyday people in everyday life. 
It was not something uncommon. In fact, in Christ's day, when you would use the word redemption, it was a vivid word picture. People would kind of actually visually understand and see it. it it's kind of similar to the sense that when we use the word today, like let's, if I say terrorist, I'm sure something comes to mind. Not only do you understand it, but you actually can feel it. You may even visualize something, like 9-11. Or if I say school shooting, that's, that's a far-removed word. That's kind of a secular word. We didn't, that's, none of these have become what we call religious terms. In that day, when they would say the word redemption in the first century, it had that kind of grip on people. This was something that they had experienced, or they knew someone who had, or it was somewhat very much alive within the communities they lived. And so what I need to do is have you kind of walk back with me a little bit into the Greek usage and culture of this term. And then we're going to look a little bit how the Jews themselves understood it. But you have to understand the Greek culture first. Because in the first century, what, what you need to understand is, you know, like in, America, in our world today, English is spoken many, many different places around the world. And one of the reasons is because um, our... our culture has pervaded through and influenced much of the world. So you can go around the world and you could probably find a Coca-Cola, right? Or you can find a McDonald's. You see, in that day, there was a Greek invasion that, that went through the whole Mediterranean and all the way through the Middle East. And in the same way that English spread everywhere, the Greek language was spoken in all these areas. And, and the Greek generals conquered that area. And so that was kind of the backdrop. And they had a word that was very important. In fact, the origin of the word came from the practice of their warfare. So this word was something that people had known and experienced. And, and, and this word is, is the word lutrosis. And it just means redemption. Now, now they didn't have nuclear bombs and, and they didn't have poison gas and stealth bombers, but they, they really knew how to mess up a person's life back then as well. They had a custom that when they would engage in war, and, and it wasn't just the Greeks, but there were all kinds of little wars that would take place from village to village, in fact. And when they would have a war, there was a custom that would often take place. And in that custom, when a person would, when a group, a villager, or an army would come in and they'd win that war, and they were the victors, it's, you know the, the line, to, to the victors goes the spoils? And a lot of times you might think that is, is the treasure of gold and silver and gems and things like that. But you know one of the most important treasures that they brought back from those war times were people. And when they would go into a place and they would conquer an area and they would become the victors, they would bring back people and that manpower was what stimulated and developed and grew their economy. They had a ready-made workforce. You didn't have to worry about the minimum wage. You didn't have to pay a wage except for feeding them. And so what would happen in those days, they would go in, and they would grab these people, they'd bring them back home, and then they would look them over, and as they'd look them over, they'd try and figure out the person's value. And, and, and often, if a person was physically strong and quite capable, they would be used in, in an area of hard labor or menial work. They would be what we often kind of say is a common, ordinary slave. Throughout history, that's how people, what would happen at the end of war. What would happen in some cases, though, is they'd be going through a group, and they might see a guy, let's just say they see a man or a woman, and they don't look like they've been working with their hands. They look like this guy. Well, what's this guy do? He's got a lot of value. He's probably not a common worker, so to speak. And so they would kind of look at that person, and they'd begin to evaluate, and they go, well, there's a lot of value to this person. More value is this person back at that village where he came from than he would be maybe where we're at. 
And so then they would kind of figure out what would be the value. They'd put a price on that person's head and they would go back with a a message to that village that so-and-so is able to be bought back. He could be redeemed. And they would, in the village, you know, look at how much it cost and they would pass the hat or helmet or whatever they had. And you would hope they had the same value on you that they placed on your head. And then they would buy back, as they would purchase back some of these imprisoned, captive slaves. And that's kind of the background. And this process in the ancient world was called redemption. You redeem someone you valued, and the person who paid the price was called the redeemer, and the sum of money was called the ransom. Are you with me? Okay, I'm trying to make it interesting and understandable. You see, you you have to understand, they felt its impact. Because if you, by a cruel accident of war, or maybe by a stupid choice, went to war, or your village was near the war, and you fell into the hands of the enemy, you were trapped, imprisoned, enslaved, you couldn't break free, you were chain-bound and captive, and left to yourself you would have a life sentence of captivity. And if you were to be set free, money must be paid. To be restored to the place you belonged, someone had to buy you back. You must be redeemed by a redeemer with a ransom. Now, the New Testament authors understood this word lutrosis, and it was actually translated in the Greek Septuagint. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But this word lutrosis was a word that when the New Testament authors started to write in the Greek, they didn't use the word lutrosis. They actually used the word apolutrosis, which is A-P-O, which is just a a, a compound word. And there's not a lot of, in fact, fact, I'll I'll read to you from my uh, New Testament scholar's name, Leon Morris. He was a brilliant guy, super well-read. I had him as a professor at Trinity, and he writes this. I have been able to find only ten examples of the word apolutrosis in all the Greek writings. It is a rare word, so that the New Testament usage stands out. It seems to me, it seems that the New Testament writers chose to use an unusual and distinctive word because they wanted to bring out the truth that the redemption Christ brought about in dying for sinners was no ordinary redemption like they had experienced, not just one redemption among others. And, and someone asked me at the first year, so what does apolutrosis mean? It just means redemption. It's the same as the word lutrosis, but they decided to use the word apolutrosis at that time because they knew that it would be distinct because they wanted to set apart what Jesus did from all the other kind of things that they had experienced, but yet still keep that experience in their heart. So now let's go to the Jewish usage and their culture, because if that Greek culture was sometime like 300 or 200 years before the coming of Christ, what happened was that Greek culture spread throughout there. So people started to speak the Greek language. And you know what it's like if you have someone who comes over here and maybe they're, they're speaking a, a, another language and they're here. The first generation knows the language a little bit. The second generation knows it a little bit. You know, maybe knows a few words. And then by the third, they're not speaking that language at all, right? Well, so that was happening throughout that whole world. And, and there were Jewish communities all throughout the world. And because they were growing up and speaking Greek and they weren't speaking Hebrew anymore, they, they wrote this, they, they translated the Hebrew scripture called into what is called the Septuagint. And they used the word lutrosis to explain three, three of the most common words around this idea of redemption in the Old Testament. 
And I was going to go through this um, a lot more, but here's the problem when you start teaching rather than the preaching is when you teach, you just want to have a whole lot of content and, and you'd look already a little bored to me. But there's nuances in these words that are really important. So I'm going to go through them rather quickly, okay? So hang with me for a little bit. The first word, ga'al, in the Hebrew is often used with the idea of promoting the interest and welfare of the family. It was redeeming something with regard to someone in the family or something to do with the interest or welfare of the family. And it's used about 45 times in the Greek Septuagint. And it's translated that way. Leviticus 25, verses 47 and 49, are probably a, a, is, is one example of this, of this use of this term. So this is what it says in verse 47. If a foreigner living among you becomes rich and an Israelite becomes poor and sells himself to the foreigner or to the foreigner's family... He may be redeemed by one of his brothers, his uncle, nephew, or anyone else who is a near relative, which is called the kinsman redeemer. Some of you may have heard that term. And he may also redeem himself if he can find enough money. In, in some cases, not just in the Jewish culture, but in other cultures, there was this ability to actually, if, a, if an owner was nice, he would allow for you to save some money to buy your freedom. That was really not that common. So here's the idea. Let's say you've got some money and all of a sudden you just come up on some bad times and you start losing some money and your, your cash flow is heading south and you, you need to, you know, sell some things off. What do you do first? You sell your stuff, right? And then if it really is still continuing that way and it's getting bad and you don't have any more stuff to sell, what do you sell next? Your property. And if you, you, you're still heading that way and you can't get out of it, you then sell what? What's the last thing you want to sell? Yourself. Why? Because you lose what? God wants you to be free. We all know that. Leviticus is kind of interesting. I think it's, I, I was reading this and, and going through a bunch of these different verses there, but this one specifically, I thought, this is a good reason in that day why you wanted to have good family relationships. <laughs> you would want your family member to buy you out, right? Because, I mean, your neighbor's probably not going to do it. Well, the second word is the word pada, and it's used um, in the sense that there's no element of family obligation. So it has nothing to do with family obligation. In fact, there, when you find this word used, there is no obligation at all. Okay? When, when you redeem and you pay a price, you're paying a price and there's no obligation at all. In fact, if you are a person who is trapped or you're captive or you're bound in some way, it is by the sheer goodness and grace of an individual. They somehow step in, they make a choice with no obligation to you to pay the price to set you free. That's how it's used also in the Old Testament. And I think about that. I think of Victor Hugo's play, Les Miserables. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Les Miserables. Anyway, I had to do that. After, after 19 years in prison... Five, this guy, um, Jean Valjean, for, for stealing bread. And, and the rest of the time he's in prison, they extend his sentence because he's tried to escape a number of times, right? Because the goal is to be free. Jean Valjean, prisoners 24601, is released on parole by the policeman Javert. And by law, Valjean, Valjean has to display this yellow ticket of, of leave, which identifies to everyone that he's an ex-convict. And so everywhere he goes, he has this little yellow thing on him that identifies to those who are looking at him that he's an ex-convict. And when he goes to different places, he can't find a place to lodge. 
He has no place where he can stay, and there is no one who wants to hire him because he's got this little yellow thing on him that says he was a what? An ex-convict. So he's getting embittered, he's rather upset, and eventually goes to a place, and there's the Bishop of Digne who offers him food and shelter. An act of grace. But at this point, Valjean is very, very embittered, and, and all he can think about is he just wants to get away. He doesn't want to be on parole. He doesn't want this guy hanging over his shoulder. So he steals the bishop's silver. He takes off, he flees, and the police catch him, and now they have him, and he's going to go back to prison. They bring him to the bishop in order to get the bishop's, you know, signing off on it, saying, yeah, this guy deserves to go back to prison. And the bishop's response is amazing. The bishop says, oh, no, no, I gave him that silver. And, and in fact, Valjean, you forgot the gift also that I gave you. These two, these two silver candle, you know, labras. He, he hands it to him and he says, you forgot to take these. He didn't have to do that. It was pure, unmitigated grace, no obligation. He hands it to him to set Valjean free. And listen, I love the words of the bishop to Valjean when he says, use the silver to become an honest man. And that he has bought, says the bishop, I have bought Valjean your soul for God. And the bishop redeems Valjean. That's the idea of redeems from his crime and gives him a chance to begin his life again without the stigma of this little yellow ticket on his breast. That's what this word means. Just pure grace. One is for welfare of the family. Someone buys you back because they love you. Someone buys you back because they have no other reason except they are acting out of grace. 2 Samuel 7.23, and the verse here is an interesting one because you you can find this um, word, I think it's used about 42 or 45 times in in the Septuagint, or or translated that way to lutrosis in the Septuagint. But this word pada, which is found in 2 Samuel 7.23, and and you find David at a certain point, he's praying to God and saying, God, I really, I'm living in this incredible palace, and I look at your temple, I look at your place, and it's it's a tent. I can't believe that I'm living in this beautiful place and, and you're living in a tent. I've got to do better for you, God. And, and, and the prophet hears and comes to him and says, David, guess what? God's heard your cry. And David's response is, I can't believe this. God, I can't believe this. It's good to me. Because God says to him, David, not only do I, will I let you help you provide to build the temple, you yourself won't, but your son will, but I'm actually going to build a house for you. What? I'm going to build a dynasty that there will be kings that will eventually will come one who will redeem the whole world. And I'm doing this for you. And David goes, I can't believe this. This is sheer grace. And then he thinks about his people Israel because he's on a roll. He's thinking about how God has chosen him out of pure grace with no obligation. He goes, not only me, but my family, my nation, Israel, the same thing. Listen to these words. What other nation in all the earth has received such, and you should put in their unmitigated blessing as Israel, your people. For you have rescued. Literally, the word here is redeemed, your chosen nation, in order to bring glory to your name. Not for anything else, but for your name and who you are. You have done great miracles to destroy Egypt and its gods. And then there's this word, not only about family welfare and about no obligation, but there's a word that is translated kofar. 
One of the roots is Yom Kippur, Kippur meaning to cover, the Day of Atonement. This word kofar is the idea that you cover someone payment with a price, you give a ransom is what the word means. So that Job 33, 24 at one point says, spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Or Proverbs 13, 8 in the NIV says, a person's riches may ransom their life. Again, Leon Morris writes, the use of the redemption terminology in the Old Testament leads us to the conclusion that it is concerned with release upon a payment of a price. It is not used of simple release. There were other words. He says, for there are other terms were available and were in use to do that. The idea of a payment of a price, the ransom, redeemed, redeemer, is basic to all redemption words. Someone foots the bill for you. Someone pays a cost for you. So what did Jesus mean by this word? So you have all this background. So now you're kind of up to speed, okay? You all went through Old Testament, and you're, you're about, you all know the Greek culture now, and so now Jesus comes along. Isn't it kind of cool? Jesus comes along, he's teaching, and, and, and Jesus is incredibly profound in the way he teaches. So at one point, Mark tells us in chapter 10, verse 45, that Jesus is just looks around and says to the group of them, he just wants to make it clear. He says, for even the Son of Man, Son of Man is the way he'd say, for even me. Okay, that was a very common term that you would kind of distance yourself. Even for, for, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That, that's a huge statement right there. Because there's one thing he's saying and making very clear to each and every one of us is, guess what? The whole reason I came to this earth, I wasn't trying to give you some, some good moral kind of Confucian kind of principles. I wasn't coming here to, to just show you an example of how to live so that maybe you could live like that. He, he, he doesn't say, I just came for a few people that I could set a few people, you know, who have some real difficulty. They, they're the ones who are, you know, they're alcoholic or they're, they've got this major thing going on in their life. And I came for, he says, no, I came for many. And the word many is the idea more the idea of all for anyone who would accept. And he says, here's why I came. My whole mission was to redeem was to offer a sum of worth and value with the implication being to set other people free. Now, if you follow Jesus and you, and you get a little bit more understanding of this idea of freedom, because at one point he's also speaking to a group of the Jews, and there were Jews who would follow him, and there were some who were believers who were, who were saying, yeah, I like this Jesus, and they would, they would take a step, and they'd take the initial steps to follow, some who would follow a little bit longer. And then there were people who were going, ah, I'm not really sure, I'm kind of on the fence. And some of you may be in that place, you know, well, you know, yeah, I come to church, I get this little bit about Jesus, and yeah, I'm not really sure I'm going to give everything to him yet and follow him in every way. And then there's some who are going, <laughs> no way. There was a whole, in fact, religious group. In fact, what we get really kind of thrown off here is it was the religious ones that had the most difficulty with Jesus. It'd be the people in the church kind of settings. And Jesus says to the Jews who had believed in him, now catch this, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. 
That's an interesting statement he's making right there. He's saying, yes, you not only begin to follow, but the person who follows and, and actually holds grasp, takes tightly my teaching. Listen to this. They're the ones who really are my followers. It's not just the ones who give lip service. It's not the ones who, who, who maybe pay some attention from time to time. It's the ones who take my word and they live it out day in and day out. They really try and process in their life. They're not perfect people. Then you will know. Listen, to this. this is a phrase that a lot of people in the secular world, love to repeat. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the reason they, they use this word is because it's really true. Truth does set you free. If you're ignorant of something, or, or you, don't, you deny something, you're not going to be able to deal with reality. But his point is this. If you know the truth, if you're holding to my teaching, which is the truth, and you begin to follow me with your whole life, guess what? As you follow me, I will set you free. Well, I find it really interesting because, you know, some are going, oh, that's really interesting. Some are going, yeah, we're doing that. And then there's a few that are going, you got to be kidding me. In fact, the religious react to these words. Those who appear to have their act most together in that day and age, those who from the outside look to be the most free, are the ones that have the most trouble with these words. Because if you go on to verse 33, it says, they answered Jesus and they said, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. Are you crazy, Jesus? How can you say that we shall be set free? That one word sets them off. You all know what that's like, right? Anytime you've ever been in, you know, if you're married, let's just put it this way, and you're in a discussion, you know, air quotes, which is a nice way of saying argument with your spouse, and as you're kind of doing else, and they look at you and go, well, that sounds just like your mother. Those are fighting words. Or, or you know, you say, or she says, yeah, that's, you're acting just like your dad. You know, we all know how to do that. There's a word you can use that just pushes the button that gets someone really ticked off. I don't know if Jesus was trying to do that, but it is really interesting that this one word, which is the word, how can you say that we shall be set free? I just think about that. I go, how deluded they are. Aren't we... The descendants of Abraham never been slaves to anyone. Well, let's think about that for a second. What were they in Egypt? Slaves. Yeah, yeah. What about Assyria? Uh, what about Babylon? Who's the ruling power right now in, in, in Israel when Jesus is there? Rome. They're virtually slaves. But what I find is interesting is Jesus is not even talking about external stuff. We so often mix things up in our spiritual lives, we think it's something out there. You know, you think about, well, it's the alcoholic, if you just get rid of the bottle, or, or you know, with the idea of lust, if you could just, you know, don't use the internet and get away from porn, or, or we think, you know, if, if, if that person who just ticks me off, that, my anger isn't the issue, it's that person. Right? Anybody ever had that kind of thought in their mind? But Jesus goes, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about something external to you. In fact, all these things in this world are yours to be used and enjoyed. It's not anything outside you that's the problem, folks. As Jesus says in verse 34 and 36, he replied very truly. Here's, when he says very truly, he's kind of like saying, you can take this to the bank, okay? This is one you can cash in on if you want to. Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Basically, if you sin, you're a slave, would be my translation of that. And as free as you think you are, you aren't. 
And the more proud you are in the sense that you got your act together, it might be a reflection of the fact that you really have some things in your life you don't. You are freed only through the work of Jesus and that happens through a repentant heart. We think of repentance so often as, you know, you know like, oh, this person's repentant. And what is, often we associate with the person just crying and, oh, I just feel horrible and rotten. Now, that may come. The emotions may come when you honestly look at it. But the words repent means to think again. It means to, to reevaluate your strategy for living. That's when Jesus said repent. He wasn't going, oh, feel really bad and feel sorry and, and try and work up some bad fe- you know, some feelings of feeling sorry. What he's basically saying when he looks at people and says repent, he goes, guess what, guys? Your heart needs to be dealt with. There are things in your heart. If you, you need to honestly evaluate this, examine this, and begin to understand that there is something called sin that is is a principle in your life and you need to come to a place where you say, God, I recognize the fact that I myself can't do this and in humility, in complete vulnerability, moving from a place of self-righteousness and getting rid of all the goodness, you just say to God, God, and you know people who do this the most are people who feel they're being imprisoned and trapped. And you can be, to all our eyes right now, incredibly free-looking but there may be a few of you here who are going, I'm so trapped. And Jesus is looking in your eyes going, I want you to be free. I didn't come for you to come and serve me. This, this whole thing is not about you coming to church and putting in your time and, and looking real good and getting some brownie points. This whole thing is about me serving you and so that I could give my life as a redemption, that I could give you my heart, and from your heart will then now flow desires and love for God. doesn't mean you're perfect. It means that as you begin to hold his teaching, he will begin to set you free. And if you've never opened your heart and said, God, in this area... And I, I do want to speak to people who are, quote, religious churched. Because one of the practical applications of this, as we talk about applications, is that we all need to be redeemed. The older I get, the more I see what a Pharisee I am. I am far more proud, far more convinced that I'm generous, kind, loving, and fair than I truly am. I mean that. I buffalo myself. And I know you do too. I find that I'm far more concerned about my reputation of goodness than the reality of my goodness. There's a book by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. He wrote a book called The Righteous Mind. I think it's a phenomenal book. He's not... So in, in sharing about this, he's an atheist, but I believe he's one of these honest atheists. I think... I, my, I pray for him. I pray that he will come to a... Genuine faith in Christ. Because as I read some of his stuff, he's, he's honest. He has a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And he writes one of the most universal pieces of advice from across cultures and eras is that we are all hypocrites. And in our condemnation of others' hypocrisy, we only compound our own hypocrisy. Social psychologists have recently isolated mechanisms, basically through testing, that make us blind to the logs in our own eyes. The moral implications, he writes, of these findings are disturbing. And I want to go, yeah, it's exactly what God's word has said. And he he, he even attested the listings that Jesus said. And and as as not a believer, but I think an honest person, he goes on to list study upon study where even the best of people, good people, and even the Billy Grahams and the Mother Teresas of the world, he he says, are still deep down stained with self-centered interest. 
Anybody as good as Mother Teresa here? And he writes that regard to one of the examples, a, a guy named Dan Batson of University of Kansas. Anybody want to do a shout out for Kansas? Right? No, I'm just kidding. Boo, Kansas basketball. Anyway, anyway, Batson devised a clever way to make people choose between being fair or not. And he writes, his findings were not pretty. Even the most moral took the shortcuts. Bottom line, writes Height, is when it comes to being truly honest with ourselves, we spin a comparison either by inflating our own claims or by disparaging the claims of others. And the consistent finding of psychological research is that we are fairly accurate in the prediction in, in, in our perceptions of others. Isn't that interesting? We're, we're fairly accurate because here's the reason why. We look at their actions and we can see them and we call them out. It's our self-perceptions that are distorted because we look at ourselves in a rose-colored mirror because we always go back to, well, I didn't really mean that. We always go to intention. And we choose not to be honest with our sin, our need to be redeemed, to be set free from sin. And, And I'm not talking about acts of sin. I'm talking about the actual stain of sin that requires a new heart that Jesus paid for. This is what Jesus did on the cross. His love for us allows us to look honestly at ourselves. Okay? When you, when you know someone really deeply loves you, you don't have to kind of hold up the reputation. When you know someone sees through the reputation, sees the reality, and they still love you, do you know His grace gives you the ability to actually take the shameful things in your life and to put them in this light where you can be honest about it. And in that honesty, it is that truth that sets you free for God to do a work in your heart. That's an incredible work of the cross. We all need to be redeemed. But here's the second thing. It's incredibly valuable as well. So when we look at the fact that we honestly assess ourselves, here's what's really cool is the way that God assesses us. You are incredibly valuable to God. Did you know that? You are incredibly valuable to God. It's not, you're not valuable because of something you bring to him. Although he'll use your gifts and wants to use your gifts. He wants to make you all that you can be. He wants you to be free to the fullest extent. But you need to remember this and never forget this. When the village of persons, and I say village or community of people, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit got together in heaven and they were looking down at us and they were looking at people trapped. They were looking at people who not only trapped in their own sin, but that sin would lead them to an eternal separation from God, which we call hell. He looked down and he said, guess what? Kevin, me, as they took the hat and they go, he's worth it. I want him back in this village of heaven. He looked at you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and all of you. And he, he passed a hat, and he goes, well, yeah, maybe no, yeah. Every one of you are valuable to him, not because of what you can bring to him or give to him or anything. It's not about your goodness. You've got to get past the goodness. It's all about the goodness and love in his heart for you. And I've got to tell you, I know, to be really vulnerable, I have to work at this one. The ability just to forgive yourself. The ability to not be hard on yourself. The ability to kind of go be honest with what, what, what God sees and, and to live in that place and then to live in this place where God sees you and still loves you. Folks, that, that's one of the incredible keys to what it means to live out the gospel of Christ. You are incredibly valuable to God. First Peter, verse 18 and 19 says this. You know that it was not 
with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with, catches the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, the perfect life of Jesus. There's a newspaper ad that I really like. It's one of my favorites. I don't really know if it's a true one. I got it years ago. But it reads this way. Lost one dog, brown hair, with several bald spots, right leg broken due to an auto accident, left hip hurt, right eye missing, left ear bitten off in a dog fight, answers to the name Lucky. <laughs> I just, that cracks me up. But I want to share with you something. The fact of your value in God's eyes has nothing to do with luck. It's all his blessing. No obligation. Out of great deep love for you. He wants to be in your life. Not to make it horrible or bad, but to give you freedom. And there's two other things that I want to share with you. And the other is this, that because of this, because of the ability to honestly assess herself and look at her sin and realize that we all have hearts that need to be replaced with the heart of God. It's what we call salvation. And then that growing and that understanding of that is, is beginning to understand how deeply loved. You know, if you could understand how deeply loved you are by God, if that was the only thing you concentrated, it would transform your life. But here's the third thing, that when you begin to understand that, you begin to move to a place where you start to go... I just want to live in a grateful sense of awe. I, I, just, I, I just want to, I want my life to be a thanksgiving to you. Peter, again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read verse 17 here from the Living Bible. He says, and remember that your heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites when he judges. He will judge you with perfect justice for everything you do. So act in reverent fear of him from now until you get to heaven. God paid a ransom to save you from the impossible road to heaven which your fathers tried to take. And, that, and the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver, as you very well know, but he paid for you with his precious life, blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. You would almost get this idea, instead of reverent fear, you would almost kind of go, look what God did. He paid for this. He's, he's, he's without any obligation, out of pure grace. He's given you this. And you almost would think he would say, now jump for joy, right? I mean, if you're set free, you don't want to jump for joy. But he says, no, I want you to live with reverent fear. Well, why would he say reverent fear? Because I think he wants us to live with this deep awareness of what it cost. And this deep awareness of how much he loves us. That can only cause you to look with awe and say, I want to live a grateful life. Peter is drawing our attention to the fact that redemption is something miraculous. It was something so profound, so amazing, that we are actually struck with a sense of holy awe. You almost can't help but live with these words of this great hymn, Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? There is this overwhelming sense of eternal gratitude and wonder. God had no obligation to do this. Our sin has brought us into this hopeless position and we had no right to think that we could ever be delivered except like that bishop, God stepped in. And Peter says it, and I'll use a Meyer paraphrase here. Here's, here's my paraphrase. Never take your redemption for granted. Never count it common, ordinary thing. You have been set free from your sin and its eternal consequences. It is the most incredible thing that has ever happened, but it did happen. Accept it with gratitude and with awe. 
Live your life, says Peter, with reverent fear. And here's the last thing. If you're following Jesus and you honestly assess yourself, you can't be judging others in the same way and you understand how valuable you are to God and you begin to live your life in a thankful way, you begin to start saying, God, how can I, like we say in our mission statement all the time, how can I know, follow, and become like Jesus? How can I invest my life for the sake of someone else? How can I, in this life, can I pay attention, God? Is there someone around me who I can just go, I need to absorb some pain for this person's gain? I really want you to think about it. You know, Holy Spirit is this incredible gift. The Holy Spirit will speak to you if you just open your ears. You don't, you don't have to work real hard at it. You just open your ears and, and say, say, God, is there someone in my life? Is there someone who, you know, is, I'm feeling pain, but I've been doing it wrong. I've been reacting and angry. You know how you, know how you get that way? You go, oh, I can't believe that, you know. Is God calling you to invest some pain for the purpose of someone else's gain? I want you to think about that, and then I'll come back up and close.